0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of our Vets Explanation Staff Edition. So I thought that this week we would talk about rat poisons. So there are tons of different types, and we're going to focus this week on the anticoagulant rodenticides. And then in the the coming weeks, I'm also going to be talking about other types of rat baits as well, because we just have so many of them. So let's like start out with what a coagulopathy rat bait is, or an anticoagulant rat bait is another way that you might hear them called. So coag means to clot, and then opathy means a disease or a disorder. So that means coagulopathy would mean a condition in which like a patient's blood could not clot. So think about like when you cut yourself, your body naturally forms a blood clot just to stop that bleeding. You don't have to do anything to make your your blood clot. This doesn't just happen from cuts though in your skin, like it also happens in other parts of your body your vessels are constantly breaking down, and your blood is immediately using your clotting factors to seal up those blood clots so that it can fix the body. So it's like the body's constantly doing it as well, so you use up a lot of clotting factors that way too. If a pet gets into some sort of coagulopathy rat this will lead to them having like prolonged or excessive bleeding because they can't make a blood clot. So now Rat poison, or more technically anticoagulant rat baits or rodenticides, are precisely that. They like they are designed to kill pests or mice or rats, whatever you want to call them, by preventing the blood cl- from actually clotting. Unfortunately, that can have the same effects on our pets, dogs, cats, livestock, uh, ferrets, rabbits, pretty much any animal this can have that same effect on. So let's talk about like different types of anticoagulant rat baits. The first generation, which actually just means that they were the first ones made. One of those names that you might be really familiar with is Warfarin. Difascinone is another common one, but there's huge lists of the first generation ones that you can find as well. The first generation group, though, it required the rodent to go back and eat that rat bait multiple times in order for it to build up in the bloodstream before it actually killed them. And then came the second generation, rodenticides because they realized those first generation ones, the rodents were becoming immune to them. So then they decided to make the second generation rodenticides, or basically I call them coagulopathy rat bait 2.0. So this second generation could kill rodents about two and a half times to 200 times faster than those first generation rat baits. Therefore, only a small amount is needed from this second generation, to be toxic to the rats or rodents, and then also to our animals. Some examples of those second-generation ones are bromodialone and diphencone. So how does this stop clotting then? So we've talked about what it is, but like how does this actually work? So essentially it works on vitamin K. Very specifically, it acts on an enzyme that makes or recycles vitamin K. That is called vitamin K epoxide, but basically it like takes up vitamin K from your body and it also makes more vitamin K. So vitamin K is super important for these parts of the blood clot to be made. There's a whole system, it's called the clotting cascade, and everything has to happen in order to make your blood clot in this clotting cascade. Each part of the clotting cascades are called clotting factors. So I won't go over like the whole clotting cascade with you and all the clotting factors, just so you know, like the most important ones um, are going to be factors 2, 7, 10, and 12. You would think that this would just be like an order of numbers, right? You're like, okay, 1, clotting factor 1 activates clotting factor 2, clotting factor 2 activates clotting factor 3. But of course, it wouldn't be science if it wasn't more complicated than that. This clotting cascade is actually in the shape of a Y. So the top left part of the Y holds all the clotting factors that can be influenced by something specifically inside the body. So for example, people who are hemophiliacs or animals who are hemophiliacs, those are the ones that cannot form certain types of factors in that top left portion of the Y. In animals, we have hemophilia A and hemophilia B. So they are missing two types of clotting factors, factors eight and factors nine. So if they were to bleed, then they cannot make a blood clot because they do not have all of the necessary factors in order to make the blood clot. The top left part of the Y is also what we use to test certain types of clotting factors. We call that test the APTT or PTT for short. That tests like that specific part, something that will happen internally. In the upper right part of the Y, we have the clotting factors that are influenced by things outside the body. So factor seven is the most important one, which is the most important for our topic of discussion. Factor seven actually needs vitamin K, and it is used up very, very quickly. If we do not have vitamin K to help it activate clotting factor seven, then the pet cannot form a blood clot. This upper right part of the Y uses the PT test to see if it's working. There's also a bottom part of the Y, but it's not as important for a discussion. You just need to know that all the clotting factors have to be there, and vitamin K is very important in order to make everything work. So the best kind of way that I described this in the other podcast was for bowling. So if you imagine all the bowling pins lined up are all the clotting factors, If you were to try to get a strike, you have to have all those clotting factors knocked down or all those bowling pins knocked down, right? If I take away one bowling pin and you try to knock it down, it doesn't matter how many times you throw that bowling ball. You're never going to make a strike because one bowling pin has now been taken away. The other way that that Sean had suggested, I have a little bit of a hard time with this, but the other way was with baking. If you do not have all the ingredients that you need to bake, let's say, bread, then it's not going to come out correctly, right? So if you don't have salt, it's going to taste bad. If you don't have baking soda, it's not going to rise correctly. So you have to have all of those clotting factors in order for it to be able to make a blood clot. And vitamin K is part of that. The parts of what make those blood clots, those clotting factors, are actually floating around the blood, in the bloodstream for short periods of time, roughly about 6 to 16 hours. If your body can't make more of the clotting factors, then in about 24 to 60 hours, so 1 to 5 days after ingesting the rat bait, the body cannot make more clotting factors and it cannot reuse vitamin K, and so therefore the blood clot cannot be made. So this is what makes this really tricky for the anticoagulant and rodenticides. The symptoms do not appear immediately. It can take up to 24 hours and up to five days after ingesting the rat bait for those signs to actually show up. The ideal situation is just that we are able to know for sure that the pet had gotten into it. They bring them in immediately and then we can treat them from there. But that doesn't always happen. So let's talk about some of these symptoms and like diagnosis and stuff. Let's say that the pet had gotten into it and we knew immediately that I got into it. So they were able to rush down. They brought the package to tell us that it was a coagulopathy rat bait or an anticoagulant rat bait. And we induce vomiting. So we give them apomorphine or we give them the Clever Drops, induce vomiting. They will hopefully vomit up some of that rat bait. And then afterwards, we can usually give them vitamin K supplementation to go home. We'll talk about vitamin K and stuff in just a minute. But that has to be that they had eaten it within about four hours of coming in. Any more than that, then we most likely are not going to get a lot back. And when it's 24 hours after that, we have a whole different story. So again, we'll talk about that in just a bit. So let's say everything goes well. We make them vomit. We're able to give them the vitamin K. So... With the vitamin K, you'll, they'll usually get it for about two weeks to up to a month. This is super, super important for anybody who is discharging these patients. When we give them vitamin K, they have to give it with a fatty meal. Most of these drugs that we use, we typically talk about just, it'll typically say don't give with food, like denamarin and things. But this one has to be given with food. Otherwise, they cannot uptake it very well. They will not absorb it into their system. Because vitamin K is a fat-soluble vitamin, but needs a fatty meal in order to be stored into a fatty place. We definitely want to give it with a fatty meal. I'll even tell people to give it with, like, cheese or to give it with canned food or give them AD to go home with. They may have diarrhea from this, but it will absorb the vitamin K better. It is super important, too, that they don't miss doses. Missing one dose is probably not going to be a huge deal. But when they miss two doses or three doses, I've definitely seen those pets come in bleeding. So we don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that they are giving it. Depending on which anticoagulant they got into, usually we'll give them for about two weeks to a month. If it's the first generation, usually only needs about two weeks. Versus the second generation ones usually need them for about a month. After that last dose of vitamin K, we want them to come back. They can come back here, they can see their regular vet. but we want them to come back about 36 hours afterwards because we want to check their PT and PTT or their coagulation factors or coagulation tests, whatever you want to call them, to make sure that they are normal. As long as they're normal, we're all good. This is actually one of my favorite rodenticides because of this. This is so easy. We can just make them vomit, give them vitamin K, check their blood in about a month. No problems, right? As long as we can catch it on time, we actually don't have that many issues with it. Versus some of our other rodenticides, they can have big problems with them. So this one is great. If we can catch it on time, if somebody calls in and they say, hey, I think my dog got into a rat bait, tell them to bring the package down, immediately bring it down, we'll make them vomit, hopefully just give them vitamin K, and then we should be good. So now you might be wondering, what this clotting test is that we were talking about. You were talking about the clotting test or coax test or PT, PTT, whatever you want to call it, but the actual names themselves are PT and PT, APTT. PT is what we use to look for RAP bait specifically. It stands for prothrombin time and APTT stands for partial thromboplastin time. I'm sure that's very confusing. Because you're like, we've not mentioned anything about prothrombin and partial thromboplastins. So we're going to kind of like talk about how vitamin K relates to all of these things. So remember how I said that those factors two, seven, nine, and 10 all need vitamin K. Factor 2 is actually called prothrombin, aka PT. Factor 2 is extremely important because it has to change fibrinogen into fibrin. And fibrin is actually what goes to make the blood clot. So if you were to imagine going back to the baking, in order to make your the end part of your cake, you have to have all those steps, right? You have to have your flour, you have to have your salt, you have to have your baking soda, you have to have all those things have to happen. And then at the end, it's not like you're done. You have to put it in the oven in order for it to bake. So this would be like the last part of that. You have to have it in the oven in order to be able to bake it. That's super important, like I said. So prothrombin, or PT, tells us that we, if we've made the bread, that we've baked it. So factor seven, or the upper right-hand part of that Y, like I said, that's influenced from things from outside the body, gets used up really, really quickly. So therefore, prothrombin cannot be made and the blood clot cannot be formed. So if I don't have part of that baking recipe, if I don't have the baking soda, it doesn't matter if I put it in the oven, it's not going to bake an edible bread, right? So you know how you put the test in and then it counts up? It's actually counting to see how long it takes for prothrombin to be made. So it's essentially testing how long it's going to take for a blood clot to be made, but specifically, how long is it going to take for prothrombin or factor two to be made? So it should only take about 18 to 30-ish seconds to be made, so when we see it extending for a longer, longer, and longer, we know that the pet most likely got into rat bait. The thing is though, it doesn't test specifically for rat bait. We have to look at a whole bunch of other factors and a whole bunch of other tests to see it's not something else that's causing this. And then can say that it's most likely rat bait. And the other one we test is the APTT. Like I said, that tests the left side of our why things that happen internally. So if the PTT is normal and that PT is really elevated, then we know that it is most likely from something outside the body, AKA probably going to be rat bait. So this brings up another really important thing when we test for PT and PTT. We use the blue top tubes, right? So if you look at a blue top tube, some of them will have a little arrow, like a little black arrow on them. It is extremely important that they're filled correctly. So if it has the little arrow, it has to be filled to that arrow that's on there. Or if there's no arrow, then you have to puncture the needle through it. And then you have to fill it up to the top so that to to no matter like you put it in and it's going to keep taking blood until it cannot take any more. As soon as it stops that suctioning of blood, then you're good. You don't have to put more into it. And then you just gently rock it. So why is this so important, right? To like, why does it have to be filled to this very specific number? This is extremely, extremely important. The reason why is because there's stuff inside that blue top tube called citrate. Citrate actually binds calcium, which is also needed desperately inside these clotting factors, inside this clotting cascade. If you have a ton of citrate in there, it's going to bind all the calcium and then no clotting can happen. Even if you have all of those clotting factors, it's going to give you very high numbers, which is false. That is wrong. This happens often in pets, and then they end up getting a blood transfusion that they didn't need. I end up seeing this quite a few times that I will recheck the blood work before I go to give that plasma transfusion or before the doctor before requested it. And I find that they did not need it because the tubes were not filled correctly. So they have to be filled correctly. Otherwise, these pets are getting plasma transfusions that they don't actually need. The citrate is like meticulously measured to make sure that the correct amount for a very specific amount of blood is in there. That way it only binds some of the calcium, not all of the calcium. Please make sure to fill it to the arrow or fill it till it cannot pull any more blood. Also remember for those who are new to drawing blood or new to drawing for some sort of coagulopathy problem, that... You need to, if they have any sort of bleeding problem, you start seeing bleeding from the nose, legs, urine, feces, anything that you do not draw from a jugular vein that you only pull it from a leg. Reason why is because a leg I can easily put a very tight wrap on to try to make sure that we hold off enough to hopefully be able to form some sort of clot. Versus if you do it in a jugular vein, you cannot hold that vein off well enough to be able to form a clot. And that pet could bleed to death because of that. So do not draw it from a jugular. You need to draw it from a peripheral vein. If it has been more than 24 hours, then some of these tests that people will likely run are going to be things like a CBC. So looking at the um, complete blood cell count, meaning we're looking at red blood cells and we're looking at platelets. We've talked before about platelets and how they're really important to make a blood clot as well. We're looking at the chemistry, so we're looking at how well things are functioning, and we're looking at the clotting times, so those coags, clotting times, PT, PTT, whatever you want to call them. The CBC and the chemistry are important because it helps us differentiate between other problems that could be happening. Maybe that PT is elevated, but also has no platelets, or maybe that PTT is elevated, but not the PT, and so we have to know which ones might be the problem. The clotting times are usually going to be the most important for our coagulopathy rat baits, but this is not specific for that. Like I said, there's no test that I can run that specifically says that, yes, it got into a rat bait. Other tests too that might be run are going to be x-rays or radiographs, and then also an ultrasound. So for those we are looking for blood somewhere it shouldn't be, so we're looking for blood in the abdomen, blood in the chest, blood around the heart, which is called pericardial effusion, so we're looking for blood in those areas. If it is blood in the abdomen, it's called a hemoabdomen. If it's blood in the chest, like around the lungs, it's called a hemothorax. And if it's blood around the heart, like I said, it's pericardial effusion. So how do we treat this now? So let's say this is not the situation where we got to it immediately, made them vomit, give them vitamin K, send them home. Let's say we didn't know pet had gotten into it. And then now they're coming in because they're showing symptoms. So what are those symptoms that we're going to see? A lot of those symptoms are going to be things like difficulty breathing, bruising somewhere. Bruising will often occur like on the gum line or like you'll see like little red dots everywhere or in the axilla, so in the armpits or on the belly, on the abdomen, or even in the inguinal area. Like you'll usually see bruising somewhere. And a lot of times that's actually what people will bring them in for. You might see that the pet is having blood in their urine or blood in their stool or even black stool, which means that they're bleeding from really high up in the GI system. So probably their stomach. They might be just really pale. So have like really, really pale gums. They can be bleeding from anywhere. So we have to like look for some of those signs. So even when you guys are doing your triage, it is really important to still be looking for those kind of things. You might see bruising, whereas I might not see bruising. I might be on the right side of the pet and you end up seeing it on the left side of the pet. When you're doing that, it is important to tell us if you start seeing some of those things. So let's say we've brought them in, we've diagnosed, we've done the blood work that diagnose that they have really high PT. We see that they're bleeding somewhere. Now what are we going to do? So next steps is usually we're going to hospitalize this pet. It is really important to put two IV catheters into this pet. One IV catheter is usually going to be used for fluids. We need to keep them hydrated, and we also need their blood to be flowing really well. If we give coagulation factors back to that PET, but it doesn't flow anywhere, it doesn't go anywhere, then that's not going to be very helpful. So we need those coagulation factors to be moved around the body. So typically, first catheter is going to be for fluids. The second catheter is going to be for plasma transfusion. Plasma is actually just contains a ton of clotting factors. All the clotting factors that the body needs is in there. So we're going to be giving another dog's clotting factors to this pet so that they can use them until their body is able to make more. Sometimes people will give like a whole blood transfusion as well. That just means that we give red blood cells and plasma. Um, Therefore, we're giving back still all of those coagulation factors and red blood cells. We only usually have to do that if they've lost a lot of red blood cells. So those pets that have a hemoabdomen or a hemothorax, a lot of those will need a whole blood transfusion because we need to give them back those red blood cells. But this isn't necessarily the case in most cases. Usually they do well just giving plasma transfusions. And then the last thing, super important to give vitamin K. So let's say you see that treatment sheet and vitamin K is not on there. You need to go ask the doctor about vitamin K because this is extremely important. The pet cannot make more of those clotting factors, factor seven, cannot activate it if we don't give that vitamin K. It will not make factor two or prothrombin if we don't give that vitamin K. So we have to have that vitamin K that's given. Again, we want to give it with a fatty meal when they're in the hospital. And then most coagulopathy rat baits are going to be the second generation ones. Like I said, we're going to give that that vitamin K for probably about a month. Then after we give those plasma transfusions, we're going to be checking the clotting times pretty frequently because we want to see if they're able to come back down to normal and that they're able to remain normal. Some come down to normal and then a couple hours later when all the clotting factors have been used up, they rise again. So we usually want a couple of times showing that the clotting factors were normal before we're able to send that pet home. Sometimes that does mean that we have to give more than one plasma transfusion too. This all just depends on that pet's body. We cannot make them make more clotting factors. All we can do is try to help support them until their body can start making them. I always tell people that the best way to prevent this is going to be having their rodenticides locked up in a container. You can go to the store and just buy those big black boxes that the rodent has to go into in order to be able to get the rodenticide. I say the most common times that people bring their pets in for getting a ro- into rodenticide is that somebody threw them behind the, the shed or under the porch and assumed that the pet couldn't get to them. Well, they put it in a box on the shelf and then realized that the pet had gotten into them later. So really ideally just trying to make sure that they have it secured somewhere. It doesn't mean that they absolutely will not get rodenticide poisoning if they're secured. The second thing is that a rodent can grab those blocks and then bring them out of that box, and then the pet can eat it that way. It can also be that the rodent eats the big amount of them and then runs off, and before it even gets digested, the pet eats that rodent. And it's just, It's got to be a small pet. If it was a large pet, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. It's got to be a lar- a smaller pet. People will also call in and ask, can they just make their dog or cat vomit at home? So I can use hydrogen peroxide to do this, but I tell people it is not worth it to do it at home. It is best just to come here because there are so many other things that can happen with hydrogen peroxide. They can aspirate from it, just like with the owners giving it. It's a large amount that they have to give. And if that pet inhales instead of swallows, then they can aspirate. That becomes a problem. I've also seen some stomach ulcers that have been made because of hydrogen peroxide. So let's say this dog may have only needed to vomit and then be put on a vitamin K prescription. Had they not made them vomit with hydrogen peroxide, but now they end up having to be hospitalized with an aspiration pneumonia because they inhaled the hydrogen peroxide rather than swallowing it. So it's better, safer just to bring them in, make them have us make them vomit really quickly, and that way we can give them vitamin K and get them on their way. If people do ask, how much hydrogen peroxide can I give? It is technically one mil per pound. It has to be the 3%, though, which is the most common one that people have. There is a 30% one, which that's the one that is used for bleaching hair. So we don't want to give that one. It needs to be the regular 3% one. If people don't have a syringe, it's one teaspoon for every five pounds. That can be used as well. But I will say, I just... I just don't have a lot of pets that vomit on hydrogen peroxide, so I just don't usually recommend it. I usually just recommend them getting in the car and driving to that hospital. I also want to note too, I've had people call in and ask about rabbits. So you can make pe- certain pets that vomit with hydrogen peroxide, like dogs, cats, ferrets, and even pot pigs, but rodents, rabbits, birds, horses, ruminants of so cows and stuff, cows and goats, they cannot vomit. So do not advise them to give hydrogen peroxide for all of those, especially the rabbit. The one is the one I've gotten before is to have them call pet poison control or ASPCA poison control so that they can talk to them to decide what the next steps are going to be. Cause it might be that they end up saying to hospitalize them or to give them vitamin K. And we don't know those doses. So they do have to call poison control for those. Also a special note for cats, we give. Apomorphine and the clever drops for dogs, those do not work for cats. Usually you have to give like dextomator for them or xylazine for them, which even when we give them, it's not always successful. So we try the best we can to try to get them to vomit it up, but it doesn't always work. So hydrogen peroxide rarely works on them. So I usually don't recommend it for a cat. I've also had the other day somebody called in and said that they gave activated charcoal to their pet to make them vomit. Just so you know, activated charcoal does not make a pet vomit. It's there to be able to help bind toxins, but it doesn't work for certain toxins. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that I don't think it works very well for the anticoagulated rodenticides. There's no reason to give the activated charcoal. It's not going to make the pet vomit. Really, it just needs to be decontaminated, meaning we make them vomit and then give them vitamin K. A question that I'll often get to is whether or not the owner or the pet parent needs to call pet poison control. So this depends. They should 100% bring in that box. If they have the box that it originally came in, they need to bring in that box. reason why is because there are lots of different companies that make lots of different types of rat bait. So Tomcat, for example, they make every single type of rat bait and they all have the exact same packaging. So it's very common for people to show a picture of Tomcat and be like, this is the one that I bought. You can see this is the exact picture. That doesn't matter. That, that exact picture will be on the same one as an coagulant rodenticide. It'll be the same one for a calcium-binding rodenticide. It'll be the same one for neurological rodenticide. We treat all of those very differently. So we have to know what kind of package it is. We have to know what the active ingredient is. If they have some sort of like, they can show me on Amazon in their cart, then that's fine. But otherwise they need a picture of that box or they need to have somebody bring in the package. The other thing is that people will sometimes just look up and see that it's like a gray or a green or a blue block. And they're like, can't you decide, can't you like figure out what it is just by the fact that it's a blue block. But again, impossible because each one of those different types of rodenticides is made from a different color so it's not like one color means anticoagulant and another color means neurologic they all are the same so they just give it a green or blue color so that that way if they do vomit it up or they do poop it out that you know that it got into something otherwise the other thing too is that it's not just blocks so it's also like baits these like little pellets it can be from powders it can be from wax blocks like it could be from a lot of different things that actually th- that make these rat baits. So it doesn't have to be those big blocks that we think of. Another question that I get, is there anything that's not harmful to pets, like any rodenticides that are not harmful? There are some that claim to be not harmful. So rat X is one of them. What it does is it coats the lining of the rodent's stomach and the rodent's intestines. So it kind of blocks the brain signals from telling the rat that it's thirsty and to drink water. So essentially, these rodents just die of dehydration. Luckily, like our cats and dogs, their intestines are much, much longer. So therefore, it's less of a chance that it's going to hurt them. But I will say, if you have three-pound Chihuahua and eat like a whole bag of this rat X, then I do think it would probably be pretty dangerous if that was the case. So, you know, is it mostly not harmful? Yes. Is it completely not harmful? No. All right, I know there was a lot on rat baits. The unfortunate thing right now for these anticoagulant rodenticides is that a lot of them are starting to not be made anymore, even though this is probably the easiest one to fix. A lot of them are going to be made into these other really bad ones, which we're going to be talking about later. So that kind of sucks because, like I said, this can be such an easy thing to fix with just making them vomit and giving them vitamin K. But now we're having to deal with a lot of other types of rat baits that are worse off than this one all right i'm going to tell you like two stories real quick so one of them is like this fact that i talked about on the vetsplation podcast it's about warfarin because i think it's super interesting so this all started with a farmer he had a dead cow and like a big old glass of this bloody urine that he brought to this research lab he my cows keep dying and they keep having this bloody urine. And the only thing I can think of is that it might be this moldy clovers that are near them. So the researchers like started running tests to try to figure out what was in these clovers to see if there was something that could be causing this bloody urine and for all these cows to die. And they found a bunch of chemicals that might contribute to it. But they found a very specific isolate called number 42 that could be so potent that it could kill these rodents that they were experimenting on. So those first rodenticides were made in like the 40s by the research foundation, which is called the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation or WARF for short, so W-A-R-F, WARF. They were investigating like how to get rid of this rodent problem and came up with the drug Warfarin, which is named after WARF, the research company. After like, they figured out this could be used as an anticoagulant rodenticide, they're like, great. Well, we're going to start putting this out so we can kill more rodents. And this shouldn't hurt any of our animals. Those rodents started to become more immune to these drugs like warfarin. And therefore they would start, they had to start making better rat baits, more potent rat baits that would kill faster. Now we're starting to get into ones that are going to kill animals faster. So. The second generation of rat bait comes out and lots of other types as well. But once they realized they had this chemical, they started to see if could we use this in human medicine as well? they like, we can make a heck of a lot more money in human medicine than we can in rodenticides. So they started to like try to talk to a lot of the doctors about using this for people who have had strokes and for heart attacks. But doctors were like, hey, hey, you want me to give something that kills rats to my patients and you think that's going to save their life. So they were really hesitant to give these to their human patients. They did do testing on human patients and found like dosages that could work for them. But it wasn't really until President Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack. He was given warfarin and it saved his life. Then doctors are like, oh my gosh, you just saved this president's life with warfarin. This is definitely something that we should put more into and use as a more safe and effective treatment. So now they started using it for medical purposes. There are less people now who are on warfarin, but the experts estimate that there's about 100 million prescriptions that still go out each year for people who are on it. So I just think it's super crazy that you could have this drug that started out as a moldy clover that killed a bunch of cows, but then can save lives at the same time. Just super interesting. All right, the other story I'm going to tell you about now is going to be a personal story of mine. So I know that sometimes people get frustrated when we teach. It takes longer to teach our students. It's, it's, we don't go as, as fast as I normally would, or you're frustrated with the fact that they don't know things. but. If we don't do that, then these people are not going to learn these things. So my two things are: one, when I was a technician, I didn't know if, that I wanted to be a veterinarian. I at first I had an idea that I wanted to be a veterinarian when I was younger, but when I was a technician, I wanted to know so much more. And those doctors that I worked with just couldn't give me these answers. They couldn't tell me why they thought that something was an obstruction on X-rays. they couldn't tell me why. Certain types of blood tests went up, which to me I didn't understand. I didn't understand why they couldn't do that because I was like, "This is something like you went to school for. This is something you should know." You can tell me that BUN and creatinine are for the kidneys, but you can't tell me why. So I I just needed to know those things, and it wasn't until I realized that I just needed to know these things that I actually ended up going to school to be a veterinarian. The other thing is though that when I was in vet school. I planned to be a general practice veterinarian my freshman year, my sophomore year, my junior year. That was my plan. I was going to be a general practice veterinarian when I got out of school. It was going to be something that I could have, could just work like a nine to five job, see my family and be with them. It wasn't until I took my third year rotation in emergency medicine that I did the most hands-on stuff that I had done all throughout my veterinary school. So I was doing you know, suture repairs, I was in surgery, I was seeing patients, and I just realized during that rotation in emergency medicine that that's what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to be an emergency veterinarian. I went back my fourth year because I was like, maybe this was just because I thought I was really cool. So let's try doing general practice and doing emergency medicine and see if I still like it. So that's what I did. I did multiple general practice type things. And then I did this one ER rotation. And I loved that ER rotation so much that I decided that that's what I wanted to be. Like I wanted to be an ER veterinarian. But my point is, is that had I not been a student who had been exposed to that, today, I would be a general practice veterinarian. I would not be an ER veterinarian. And I do love general practice veterinarians. I think that they definitely have their own niche. They have to be a very a person who like loves little tiny details of things and who can manage things over several years. But That's just not me. I love fixing things in the moment. I love being able to bring something back from almost dying. But Had I not been given that opportunity, had I not been this student that all of these other students are at right now, had I not been able to work on animals and to go into surgeries, I would not be where I am today. So the next time you get frustrated because a student doesn't know something or because they're not fast enough, think about like how this one rotation or these Four weeks that they're going to be there is going to impact the rest of their life. It could change the trajectory of what they end up doing completely. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. I know this is a hard one with these rodenticides because there's a lot to them. I try to just explain this the best that I can without teaching you the whole entire vet school that I went through. So if you have any questions, again, like I said, always come ask me. I'm more than happy to answer your questions, do whatever whatever topics that you want to do in the next coming weeks. Like I said, I'm going to do some more rodenticide. but I'm also going to be talking to Dr. Z and Dr. Watson. And so I'll have them on as well. All right. Thank you guys.